Some of the great philosophers have also been great writers in the sense of literary artists. I suppose the outstanding examples are Plato, St. Augustine, Schopenhauer and Nietzsche. And if not quite in their class, Descartes, Pascal, Berkeley, Hume, Rousseau were certainly very good writers anyway. And in our own time, Bertrand Russell and Jean-Paul Sartre have both been awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature. But on the other hand, some great philosophers have been bad writers, two of the very greatest, Kant and Aristotle, being two of the worst. Quite a few are just pedestrian. One thinks, for instance, of Aquinas or Locke. As for Hegel, his work has become a byword for obscurity, almost a joke in this respect. He must be the most difficult to read of all world-famous writers. What these examples show is that philosophy as such is not a branch of literature. If a philosopher writes well, it's little more than a bonus. It makes him more enticing to study, obviously, but it does nothing to make him a better philosopher. A philosopher can be in the very highest rank of all, like Kant, and still be a lousy writer. I state this firmly at the outset because in this programme we're going to consider some of the areas where philosophy and literature do overlap, not only in the work of philosophers who happen to be great writers, but also in the work of other kinds of writer, poets, playwrights, novelists, who have been directly influenced by philosophical ideas. We have someone here whose experience spans both these worlds. Iris Murdoch is now a novelist of international reputation, but for many years before she became a successful novelist, and indeed for some years after, she was a tutor in philosophy at Oxford University. Iris Murdoch, when you're writing a novel on the one hand and philosophy on the other, are you actually conscious that you're engaged in two radically different kinds of writing? Are you conscious that you're writing differently? Oh, very much so, yes. Um, these two branches of thought have such different aims and such different styles, and I feel very uh, strongly that one should keep them apart from each other. I mean, that is, the, that when one's writing philosophy, one's writing something which is very much more like science, in a way, than it's, than it's like literature. And um, literature, of course, has its own rules and its own tricks, and uh, philosophy aims to... Uh, to clarify. In fact, it's essential to philosophy that should be, in some sense, clarification. And uh, literature is very often mystification. And uh, besides, literature is for fun. Literature entertains. Literature does many, many things. And philosophy does one thing. seems to me, having read uh, many of your books, including your philosophical books, that the actual sentences themselves are different. I mean, what strikes me when I, if I read one of your novels, the sentences are, so to speak, uh, uh, opaque in the sense that there's there's a lot in them, there's a heavy cargo, there's lots of, of, um, of uh, connotation and allusion and ambiguity and so on. Whereas in your philosophical writing, the sentences are translucent. They're only saying one thing at a time. Yes, well, I, I, I hope this is so, yes. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, if uh, obviously one has a style as a writer, and uh, I, have a, I certainly have a probably recognisable style as a novelist, but my philosophical style would be something totally different, and I would be very pleased if it was impossible to tell it was the same person writing. You said something a moment ago that interested me very much. You said that philosophy, I think I remembered your words correctly, you said philosophy, the aim of philosophy is to clarify, and the aim of literature is to mystify. And uh, I suppose it's central to what the novelist or the playwright is doing, that he's actually trying to create an illusion 
whereas it's central to what the philosopher is doing, that he's trying to dispel illusion or pierce through illusion or free, liberate his and our minds from illusion. Is that part, an essential part of the difference? Yes, certainly. And um, philosophy is to do with getting hold of a problem and holding on to it relentlessly and doggedly. And this is the mark of a mm. philosophical mind, this particular relentlessness, mm. the fact that you stick to your problem. Yeah. With, with the making of the contrast in mind, let, let's deal with these one at a time. I mean, uh, uh, how would you characterize literature as distinct from philosophy? in this context? Well, um, I don't think one can offer exactly a definition of literature, nor, nor no, is it necessary no, I, I, no, in, no, I, in place here. No. Um, we know, we we know, some of the characteristics. We know what literature yes, is. It's, yes. um, uh, it's uh, an art form, using words, and the, I would say that literature is art by definition, on the mm. point at which... I mean, one could define it by contrasting it with, say, journalism or something. Though I dare say great journalism is literature, but there are all sorts of borderlines here. Um, and literature is very, very various. And one thing that strikes one, of course, is that philosophy is very tiny. If you think how small European philosophy is. And we're... But just the small body of work. Yes, I mean, there's a, it's, not a, uh, it's not a vast and multifarious area. No. Uh, what strikes no. one very much, I think, is... is uh, the way in which the problems which were stated at the beginning are still there, which some people might regard as a yeah. proof that one is not making much progress. Well, the philosopher Whitehead once characterised this rather strikingly, didn't he, by saying that all Western philosophy is merely footnotes to Plato. Yes. And there's a sense in which that is true. I mean, Plato yes. mapped out the yes. territory and we've all been working in it ever since. I think the more one studies Plato, the more one sees that this is true, that he yes. raised practically every problem and raised it in a very sophisticated way. Um, well, literature is, is vast and multifarious and um, multiform. Um, it's not, of course, entirely to do with fictions. I mean, there are kinds of literature which aren't, aren't fiction. but well, historical but, writing and yes, essays. Or, and, yes, reflections of all yes, kinds. Yes. But um, typical literature, as it were, I mean, mm. stories and poems and so on, is, uh, is fictional. It is to do partly with playing roles. That uh, This is true to some extent of poetry, and uh, I suppose entirely, uh, almost entirely perhaps, one should say, true of, of the novel, that it's to do with, with masks and roles and pretending uh, and imagining in, in that sense, um, and storytelling. And in this sense, I think uh, literature is very natural. It's very close to ordinary life. And it's... Um, well, we all tell stories. You we mean, all in, tell in, stories, in, yes. In I think uh, This is the most natural thing in the world, yes. telling stories. I mean, one is doing it all the time, possibly without noticing it. If one describes one's, one's day, as it were, one is shaping one's material into a story form. Very often it's a funny story, incidentally, which I think is a very important fact. Yes, there aren't many jokes in philosophy. <laughs> no, there are witticisms, <laughs> yes. uh, but not exactly yeah. jokes. Yeah, I think jokes would be out of place. Yes. Um, yeah. And uh, that somehow we, li we live in a literary atmosphere. I mean, we, we live and breathe literature to some extent in, in that we, when we tell stories or when we write letters and so on, we are making a form um, out of something which might be formless. And this is one of, of course, the deep motives for literature or for art of any sort, uh, that one is defeating the formlessness of the world. One is imposing order on one's Yes, one is cheering oneself on one's up and consoling oneself uh, uh, and also, of course, instructing oneself by giving a form to something which 
is perhaps alarmingly formless in its original condition, a sort of rubble, as if we lived in a kind of rubble world and one's always making forms. Yes. When you say one's cheering oneself up, I mean, that brings to the fore the fact that one of the essential aims of literature has always been to entertain, yes. hasn't it? Yes, And I don't think that has anything whatever to do with the motive of philosophy. No. Um, I think it may be that philosophy also cheers us up, of course, because philosophy is the imposition of form on the, on the formless in a, in a, in a vast way. Uh, but uh, I think this is uh, something which, uh, insofar as the philosopher might be aware of this, it's something that he would be suspicious of in, in himself, because the one's temptation to produce um, uh, a hasty form or an inappropriate form in order to console oneself. This temptation is one that the philosopher, of course, has to avoid. And I think the good philosopher is always uh, um, undoing his own work. He's, this is part of the holding on to the problem, being dogged and relentless, which would also, of course, militate against uh, certain kinds of literary devices, because it means that one has to repeat oneself, that philosophy is is repetitive. It's coming back over the same ground and, yes. and breaking the form that you've made and... Uh, You've made a number of points here, uh, especially in your characterization of literature, which by implication contrast with philosophy, but I'd like now to, as it were, draw out the contrasts explicitly. For example, you said just now that, um, and I think it's a striking fact about storytelling, you said that it's natural and that mm -hmm. we all do it and it's part of everyday life and certainly we all like being told stories. Whereas I suppose by contrast, philosophy is, as it were, counter-natural. I mean... Uh, philosophy involves essentially the critical analysis of one's beliefs and the presuppositions of one's beliefs. And it's very striking that people actually don't like having that done to them. None of us do. We don't like being analysed mm. and we don't like the, the assumptions on which our beliefs rest being questioned because it makes us feel insecure and uncomfortable and we all have a strong resistance to doing it. Yes, I think it is a very counter-natural, a very unnatural activity and... When one starts doing philosophy, I mean, well, I notice this, of course, in, in teaching philosophy, that people are very reluctant to play this game or cannot see how it's done at all to begin with because it involves uh, a very odd sort of standpoint. It's, it's notoriously difficult to define philosophy, of course. If somebody yes. doesn't know what, what this activity is, it's very difficult to say <laughs> what it is. Yeah. Um, it's to do with uh, with conceptual structures to do with very deep um, structures of belief and knowledge to do with meaning, significance. is partly, of course, to do with words in the sense that it's about how language relates to the world and, and that sort of thing. Um, and it's not science and it's not art and it's, uh, it's very important that it's not science, I think, don't you think? I mean, that... that uh, uh, as soon as you start doing science, you're falling right out of philosophy. It, it's a kind of point of view which, uh, although the style may be scientific, the actual what you're doing is, is certainly not science. It's a kind of a reflection on concepts. Yes. It, it's, it, 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 well, Bertrand Russell once said that it, it's the questions that we don't know how to answer, and I think Isaiah yes. Berlin and other yes. well-known contemporary philosophers also take... This yes, view. and it means looking at things which one takes for granted yes. and suddenly seeing that they're very, very odd yes. indeed. Yes, but the, the one, one thing that philosophy does have in common with science, I think, is that it, it's based on an attempt to understand the world and to understand our environment and to understand mm -hmm. our situation. 
in a way that doesn't consist just of expressing personal attitudes and personal views. There is an attempt to, as it were, submit oneself, and this was implicit in something you said just now, I think, to submit oneself to criteria outside oneself. In other words, you're trying to say something that is impersonally true. Yes, yes. And you said just now, I think, when you were talking about the way you yourself write, you said that, uh, and it's absolutely true, that your, your novel writing has a very distinctive literary personality, whereas I think you said you wouldn't mind if your philosophical writing was thought not to have any personality. Now, it strikes me that, that almost the most important thing about an imaginative or creative writer is this possession of a literary personality. If he hasn't got a distinctive personality in that sense, we're not interested in reading it. Whereas with philosophers, it, it just isn't the case. I mean, you could read all the works of Kant with great care and interest, and at the end of it have no idea what Kant was like as a human being. Yes, of course, literature is various in this respect, isn't it? That uh, some people have a distinctive style, other people don't. Um, I suppose it is self-expression in a way by definition. I mean, that uh, unless you wanted to uh, express yourself, uh, you'd, uh, I mean, if you didn't have this motive, you'd lack a very important motive to, towards this form of art. Um, Whereas philosophy is certainly not self-expression. And philosophy, of course, is argument. Uh, and uh, you can say, well, is the conclusion true or is the argument valid? I found when talking to friends of mine who may be I mean, very intelligent and very well educated but don't know much about philosophy, I find they often express the assumption that philosophy is a branch of literature, that a philosopher is somehow expressing a personal view of the world in the way that a poet might be or a novelist might be. And it's not always easy to explain briefly why this is not so. I suppose it's partly because these problems, philosophical problems, have histories. And each individual philosopher comes on the scene at some stage in that developing history. And if he makes a contribution at all, it's rather like the scientist. He makes it at that stage. Otherwise, the, the, there isn't one to be made, so to speak. Um, yes, uh, philosophy. Um, philosophy is the history of philosophy in the sense that uh, there, there is a, a development in the, in the problems. And uh, philosophy lives on philosophy uh, very much more than art lives on art. Yes. And I think the writing of, of art, shall we, I mean, the writing of novels and poems, engages very much more of the personality, of both of the writer and the reader, actually, than philosophy mm. does. Philosophy is a much more narrowly intellectual activity. In fact, I'd go farther. I'd say that literature, to be literature at all, must move one emotionally, whereas the philosopher, mm. like the scientist, is actually trying to exclude emotional appeal, isn't he? From his work. Yes, I mean, literature could be said to be a, a sort of a disciplined um, uh, technique for arousing certain emotions. That's certainly one of its uh, uh, one of the reasons why one enjoys it, uh, and, and uh, uh, one of the reasons, perhaps, why it, it's uh, both uh, good for us when it's good and bad for us when it's bad. Well, we've been talking about the differences, and I think it's very important that we should stress these differences. But there are also some things in common, aren't there? I mean, I know from uh, previous conversations with you, for example, that you think that some notion of truth, though they may be, may be different notions of truth, are very near the centre of both. Yes. Um, I certainly hold a particular view 
on the subject of what uh, art is like and what literature is like. And, and uh, this view, which wouldn't be shared by um, everybody by any means, um, would assimilate uh, philosophy and, and literature just in that way. That is, I think that this may be perhaps the only important thing they have in common, but it is important that, that they're both um, connected with truth, that they're truth-seeking, truth-revealing activities in some sense, and they're both... Uh, I mean, it's always illuminating in a particular uh, thought form to say, well, how is it criticised? What kind of uh, critical vocabulary is directed against it? And I, I think that the question of truthfulness comes into criticism of literature as well as criticism of philosophy. Could you say a little more about this? Because I think this is particularly interesting. Um, well, that... Um, If one thinks of the kinds of things that we say uh, about um, uh, literature from a critical point of view, we often condemn it uh, for being sentimental or um, for being um, fantastic in a bad sense. Uh, I mean, let's establish, say, a contrast between imagination and fantasy, with imagination being thought of as a as a good creative um, power, and fantasy as um, a sort of um, private uh, self-consolation, so that fantasy is bad, imagination is good. Uh, I think both philosopher and writer... Uh, have to face a conflict between imagination and fantasy in themselves. That, of course, philosophy is an imaginative activity, and if one thinks of the, of the great philosophers, they're um, very often picture-makers. They're people who produce enormous metaphors and, and pictures to explain things. Um, and the intrusion of personal, any kind of personal fantasy, is obviously uh, out of place there. And But it, it, I think it's even greater... Uh, a conflict for the writer because creative imagination and personal fantasy are awfully close in relation to fiction. I mean, the obvious sort of example is the case of the of the novel, which uh, the bad novel, which turns out to be uh, simply a fantasy of how the hero, who is the writer, um, triumphs over all his enemies and uh, is loved by the girls and so on. Yes, and, and becomes rich and uh, so forth. Um, and this kind of fantasy is, uh, is a menace to the creative imagination. And in condemning art uh, for uh, being fantastic in this sense, one's very close to saying that it's untrue, that it's saying something which, which isn't true. Now, that, is, that conception of truth there is different, isn't it, from what the philosopher is trying to get at, is it not? Um... Well, the philosopher is dealing with truth in a kind of um, positive sense, in that he's trying to establish, he's trying to solve certain problems f finally. Whether he ever mm. does is another question, but I think there are certain philosophical problems, for instance, about perception, which perhaps have been solved. Mm. Um, uh, the writer has a whole lot of aims. I mean, he, this is what, of course, makes art so interesting, that it satisfies a great many uh, human activities and instincts. It, it, it uh, um, produces happiness in the creator and in the client um, through doing a whole lot of things at the same time. 
But one of the things it does, and this is, I think, is is, um, is important and comes up in uh, philosophical theories about art, which perhaps we might consider yes. in a minute. Uh, there, there is, I think, um, a mimetic aspect. What in do you literature. mean by mimetic? That is that it uh, it is imitation of nature, in some sense. Uh, that um, literature is about the world. Um, this might seem to be obvious, but of course it isn't obvious, in the sense that a lot of people would challenge this remark and say that that uh, literary art is not mimetic. Uh, the same kind of question, of course, can be asked about painting. Uh, music is a, is an odd man out, I think, in this particular discussion. But I think that there are many parallels between painting and literature, and uh, these are sometimes illuminating. You can see something more clearly, perhaps, in the case of painting, which you then can transfer, as it were, to the case of literature. You, you suggested just now that we that we move on to considering philosophical ideas about literature, and I think uh, it would be very interesting to do that. Which of, which of the... Uh, philosophical views of art that there have been, would you pick out as being the most interesting to consider? Um, I, well, I find Plato is very interesting because I, uh, it raises all the subjects which one wants to clarify one's mind about, when one wants to defend art. I, I don't know. I think philosophers haven't written very well on art on the whole, partly because they very often um, put it in as a minor issue. They've, they've got a general view, say, of morals or metaphysics and so on, and they they put in their view of art as a kind of um, piece that's got to be fitted into the picture, and uh, don't perhaps consider it too, uh, too seriously or too generously, or not generously enough. Um, there is, if, if I could chip in there, there is one philosopher whom I would exempt from that charge. I agree that that is yes. generally true, but I think Schopenhauer is an exception. I think he is genuinely deep yes. uh, on the subject of art. He, unlike nearly all other philosophers, he did regard art as being central to human life and had yes. some very profound things to say about yes, it. Yes, this is this is perfectly true. Yes, I, I, I agree with you here. Yes, yeah. I, I think that. I mean, I think that Kant is is very interesting about art. I think mm. his distinction between the sublime and the beautiful. Beautiful is purely formal. The sublime is to do with a, a kind of moral appeal to the emotions, which uh, actually he didn't think of as being art at all. But that that distinction, I think, in itself is very informative. But uh, on the whole, um, philosophers have tended to be polemical about art in a rather fruitless way. I mean, they've tended to produce, and of course any discussion about art tends endlessly to produce again and again a certain sort of either-ors about art, yes. that uh, art's got to be one thing or the other. Yes, I think this is the trouble with any philosophy of art, isn't it, that it's it's exclusive. I mean, once you think that all art has got to be of a certain kind yes. to fit in with your particular theory, yes. then it follows from that that everything that doesn't fit in with that theory isn't art. Yes, yes, I think this, fortunately, artists don't pay too much attention to philosophers, they <laughs> just carry... Carry yeah. on, but um, I think philosophy can be damaging to art in mm. the sense. If mm. I think it, uh, the people it damages, of course, are students who long to have theories. I yes. mean, one sees yes. this very often that they, uh, young people long to feel that art too can be uh, explained, or the the aim of art can be explained. I mean, there's these very familiar sorts of fights, um, uh, or either ors uh, that should art be for art's sake or should it be for society's sake and this um, I mean this is 
is quite interesting too, because again, if one, one's instincts are to reject this choice, which mine are, then to, to say exactly why can be quite yeah. informative. We've been talking up to this point of, about uh, philosophy and literature, or philosophical ideas about literature. Let's move on now to philosophy in literature. Let me, let me say what I mean by that. First of all, there have been some famous philosophers or thinkers very like philosophers, like Voltaire, who've also been major novelists. I mean, not only Voltaire, but Rousseau, uh, in our own time, Jean-Paul Sartre. Or among fa simply famous novelists, there are some who've been obviously very profoundly influenced by certain rather philosophical ideas. I mean, Tolstoy uh, appends to his novel War and Peace, a great long epilogue in which he explains that in this novel he's been trying to express a certain philosophy of history. Um, or if you take another famous Russian novelist, Dostoevsky, he's often described by uh, existentialists as the greatest of all existentialist writers because he's involved in certain kinds of problem that they themselves are also concerned with. Well, one can actually one can think of a very large number of examples, can't one? I mean, it's obvious that Proust in *A la recherche du temps perdu* is concerned, deeply concerned with problems about time, which is also one of the traditional problems that philosophers have been concerned with, and so on. Now, um, do you? I mean, what I, what I would like to get at in the form of a question to you is: What sort of role do you think that philosophy can play? in literature, in, let us take, novels, for example? Well, I think it had better keep out on, on the whole. <laughs> um, I think that uh, people say these things about writers like Tolstoy and Dostoevsky in order to have something interesting to say about them, as it were. I mean, uh, obviously, um, writers are influenced by the climate of ideas uh, of their time, and uh, they're likely to be educated people who know a little bit about... Uh, philosophical change and so forth. Um, but the amount of philosophy they succeed in expressing in the book is very small. I think as soon as philosophy gets into a novel, work of literature, it, it ceases to be philosophy. It becomes something else. It becomes a plaything of the, uh, of the writer, and, and quite rightly. Um, I mean, a, a pure novel of ideas. I mean, I... I, I don't know that it, it, you know, it's very likely that it will, uh, the harder the um, writer uh, works to present his ideas, the less good his work of art is likely to become. I think it's a very dangerous activity. I think that, again, you see the great 19th century uh, writers get away with a, quite a lot of uh, um, idea play in their writings, but if you look at it, you, it, you couldn't possibly regard it as philosophy. It's, it's idea play. Well, I wonder if I agree with you. I mean, you say that, that uh, people say this kind of thing about philosophers in order to have something interesting to say. Well, no doubt there is a lot of pseudo-talk about, uh, about novels uh, of this kind. But I did mention, for example, that, that Tolstoy himself says in War and Peace that this is one of the things he's trying to do. Or take a major English novel like Laurence Stern's Tristram Shandy. I mean, not only was that directly influenced by Locke's uh, theories about the association of ideas, but there's, a, there's quite a bit about that in the novel and in terms which obviously refer to the novel itself. In other words, uh, uh, Stern was, was quite clearly doing something which he himself related 
to Locke's uh, theory of the association of ideas. So I think there are, in fact, a number of instances of great novels, I mean, really outstanding novels, where the, where the use of philosophical ideas is part of the structure, is part of what it's about. Um, yes, all right. <laughs> um, yes, I just, I mean, I, perhaps it's just that I, I feel in myself such an absolute horror of putting theories as such uh, into, into a book. I mean, certain philosophical ideas might, uh, I mean, I perhaps put things about philosophy into my novels because I happen to know about philosophy. I mean, if I knew about sailing ships, I'd put sailing ships in. If I knew about hospitals, I'd put hospitals in. And in a way, as a novelist, I'd rather know about sailing ships and hospitals <laughs> than about philosophy. But um, I don't think that, uh, I mean, the writer necessarily um, knows... Uh, in fact, you think it's just material? Well, I think, I mean, I, I, Tolstoy says this, but I, I don't. Why should we attend to him? We read his his books, you know. Uh, uh, you know, don't trust the writer, trust the tale. One has to see what what he's actually achieved. And um, uh, I think that, I mean, I can only think of one really good philosophical novel, uh, uh, which is Sartre's La Nose, which mm. I do admire very much, mm. which might be said mm. to be a philosophical novel, mm. which is demonstrating um, something about contingency. It's interestingly, it's it's um, it's a philosophical subject which is very close to the novelist's thought. I mean, there's a kind of a good marriage there, as it were, between the novelist's thought and the and the the. And the subject. Well, let's take that, shall we? Uh, Jean-Paul Sartre's La Nausée. Mm. I mean, I I agree with you. I think it's a magnificent book, but surely it also articulates a philosophical theory. In fact, my, my introduction to existentialism, so to speak, was reading that novel, and I thought that that novel actually expressed an existentialist mm. view, and it's rather marvellous. I mean, in the form of a work of fiction. It may well be, as you say, mm. unique, but the fact that it exists at all shows that it can be done, doesn't it? Yes, yes. Um, you seem to be driving me to say something. <laughs> no, right? well, no, I'm to say. Yes, I think uh, I think there's a genuine difference of opinion between you and me, yes. which we simply may not be able to resolve in this discussion. But but you you it seems to me are trying to say that 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 um, philosophy as such has no place in imaginative writing mm. except insofar as it can simply be material, mm. like anything else oh. can be material. Whereas I think I want to say that 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 there are really a number of exceptions to this and that, that uh, some major novels do make use of, of philosophical ideas, not just as material in that sense, but, but, but in ways which inform the book. Yes, I mean, um, uh, this is perhaps just a matter of degree. Obviously, there are um, things to do with the ideas current at the time, climate of ideas and so on, which... Um, uh, give a certain flavour to novels written at a certain time and, incidentally, which make it uh, possible to write in one way at one time and uh, impossible to write in that way at another time. But um, I think one's speaking rather loosely. I think existentialism may be a, something of a special case here because it, it is a rather literary philosophy, uh, it emphasizes all sorts of things to do with the human predicament. And uh, Sartre's um, marvelous uh, philosophical work, Lettre et Néon, is sort of full of pictures and conversations, as it were. It's a true of Hegel, too, actually, that, that there's an awful lot of, of amusement and literary um, stuff, as it were, in both Hegel and in, in, in Sartre. And this is... 
this is interesting, this is something to do with the rather dramatic form of the thought in the philosophy itself, that there's some kind of drama which can be exhibited, there's some kind of feeling about the world which belongs both to the, to the philosophy and to the novel, but one can see that it's not easy from looking at other works by Sartre and by Simone de Beauvoir, where as soon as the existentialist voice comes in, the work of art is rigidified. Yes. yes, I think yes. It, it was just a lucky chance that he managed to pull it off in, in La Nose. Yes, well, I think given what you've now just said, I think perhaps we're not so far as, apart as I, as I thought. Let me raise another kind of question with you, which, again, you as a practitioner of both philosophy and uh, novel writing are almost uniquely well-placed to answer. One of the outstanding features of philosophy in the 20th century, especially in the Anglo-Saxon world, has been a completely new kind of concern with language, hasn't it, and self-consciousness about language. And um, uh, this has resulted, among other things, in, an, in a sort of very refined and scrupulous use of words and concepts and so on. Do you think that, I mean, in the case of somebody like yourself who trained as a philosopher and then became a novelist, do you think that has in any way entered into the way you write novels or affected the way you write novels? Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, I, I recognise what, what you mean about uh, this uh, particular instant language. And this, of course, I mean, the, the formalists are quite right to suggest that there's... Uh, that things have changed. I mean, this, of course, is something which every writer knows instinctively. Yes. Uh, uh, when... You can no longer write like the 19th century novelists. No. Uh, uh, and, uh, of course, we're not so good. We're not anything like as good as the great uh, 19th century novelists. But also, we, we write differently, and we would find it difficult to write as they did without an element of pastiche being involved, though I think some writers would actually regard this as kind of challenge. Uh, Why can't you write in the way that... Well, this is a very interesting question. I don't know. I mean, I, I can't exactly answer that question. Um, I mean, the obvious differences one has in mind here, of course, are things to do with the standpoint of the writer and the um, sense in which he... the way in which he inhabits the consciousness of his his characters, his relation to his characters in this sense. I think, I mean, perhaps something one might say in a minute uh, is that, um, of course, the author's relation to his characters reveals a great deal about the author's moral standpoint anyway. But um, this is a technical point, really, about the author's relation to his characters, that now, uh, uh, unless he's playing some kind of, of game... Uh, and, of course, the formalist would say he's, he's always playing game, and the more games he plays, the better. But I would say, unless he's playing some kind of game, he will instinctively express himself uh, in a way which is, is different, that he will inhabit the consciousness of his characters um, in, a, in an absolute sense. He won't describe them from the outside. He'll describe them uh, through... Uh, through consciousness, or if he suddenly describes them from the outside, this will be an obvious literary device which will uh, hang up the reader for a moment. Well, we're approaching the end of this discussion, and just now, a moment ago, you did say that you would like to take up the question of what the uh, author reveals about his moral presuppositions. So shall, can we perhaps end with that? What, what, what is it that you would like to say on that question? Well, this would be part and parcel of my view of literature, indeed my view of art, uh, which is that it is, uh, it's, people sometimes say you, you must regard 
uh, uh, art and literature as being either the production of autonomous objects or uh, a reflection of the world. I mean, I think it's both, and this seems to me to be obvious, that it is both uh, almost uh, uh, always, uh, in some sense, a reflection of the world, perhaps not absolutely always, but almost always, and quite properly so, a reflection of the world, and it's also the production of a formal object. I mean, one would wouldn't call it a work of art unless it had certain formal properties and a certain kind of appropriate to the subject matter, autonomy. Um, therefore, I, I would say art is mimetic. Uh, it is, um, uh, language is referential, right? which does refer to the world. Um, and uh, in pursuing this particular activity of producing uh, literary work, particularly, of course, fictions, and particularly, of course, the novel is the most obvious case, uh, one is inevitably involved in, in making moral judgments. And this is something to do with the nature of language, that if, um, if you tell somebody to describe their room or something, which one might think was a fairly neutral activity, uh, this description will be crammed with value judgments. And this is something which one, one can't avoid, now, not only in the choice of what they describe, which is important, but in the, in the words that they, they use. Uh, words are, are full, of, full of value. And uh, this is very obviously the case, of course, in the author's relation to his characters. And this comes back partly to this distinction between fantasy and imagination, that the, uh, if, the, if the relation is a fantasy relationship, uh, the work is, is damaged, um, both because the expansion, the uh, ability to exhibit the world in some way under a certain light uh, is, is damaged, and uh, very often, of course, the values which the author expresses are, are improper ones. Uh, and I think that the, the novelist may as well admit this, that, that he is going to be involved in making moral judgments, and his relationship to his characters is going to reveal his morality. So that it is a, there is a kind of moral challenge involved in art, both because of the, I mean, at, at a prior stage, in the self-discipline of the artist, uh, expelling fantasy, and looking at things other than himself, which I think art is very much concerned with removing a veil of fantasy, which normally perhaps wraps one's head as one gazes at the world, and looking at the world without this uh, fantastic cover, uh, that the, the artist is concerned to see uh, what is other than himself, and in a sense to respect it, and to have the self-discipline to check uh, the rushes of fantasy to which he may be subject. So this is the work of imagination then creates a, a kind of space, and one does have a kind of feeling of, of imaginative space in great works of art, as if one was standing in a big hall or something. At the prior level, he has to do this, and at a secondary level, when he's actually uh, creating the work, he will find that he has to judge his characters, and he has a way to take sides. And this can be done, of course, in many, many ways. And, uh, uh, of course, ambiguity and um, mystification and so on come into this. And the, the author, who, of course, is enjoying himself all the time, uh, as well as uh, giving pleasure, perhaps, to the reader or aiming to entertain or even instruct the reader, the author can play all sorts of mystifying games with the way in which he reveals his characters. I mean, Henry James is full of such games, for instance. But the revelation is there, and the, and the judgment is there. And, of course, what the author is doing all the time he's doing that is 
largely unconsciously revealing himself. Yes, yes, and this, of course, the unconscious self-revelation is at its most obvious in in bad art. And I think, I mean, to to, uh, stick to this question about literature and the world, I think that the the writer is engaged over a very, very large area of his personality in his writing, and that the writing and the work of art is judged against the background of the real world, and, and by the real world, I mean the common-sense real world, not some kind of recherche real world, which would need a special implements to discover, but uh, the, the world which we take to be real in ordinary life and in, in common sense. Does this mean that imaginative writing must, although it's imaginative, be rooted in some kind of respect for things as they are and acceptance of things as they are? Yes, I I think so. Yes, I think that this... I mean, one can play with this idea in relation to painting. And as I said, very often painting shows you something about literature that um, someone might say, well, obviously painting isn't always mimetic. What about abstract painting? Well, yes, certainly. Um, But... I think it's very difficult to judge abstract painting, actually, and I think a a lot of funny stuff is appearing now, which perhaps might be very difficult to justify, but in any clear critical vocabulary. But, I mean, one one works at a critical vocabulary while one works at at, at an art. Uh, The critic and the artist have a a kind of, of natural organic relationship. But the abstract painting lives in a... A world which isn't uh, which isn't abstract painting, and it's connected with that world in in deep ways, and uh, obviously one can distinguish between a good abstract painting and a bad abstract painting, and this is something to do with with the with the real world. But hard to hard to explain, perhaps, but it's there, and it's it's very much more obvious and simple, of course, in the case of a novel, where ideas of plausibility and implausibility and fantasy and so on. Do you think that this acceptance of reality implies something conservative with a small c? I'm not talking any in terms that relate at all to party politics, but to temperament. Do you think this acceptance of reality as it is implies some kind of conservatism of outlook on the part of an artist? It's an interesting point, yes. I, I... I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, to, to sorry to, to, to try to illustrate perhaps more clearly just to myself this thing about common sense being involved. Uh, there are philosophical ideas which sometimes get picked up by writers. Uh, for instance, the whole uh, collection of ideas connected with the um, uh, the self not being a kind of unitary object the self being fragmentary and so on. And this uh, this is an idea which a lot of writers, of course, play with. But the the force of their play takes place in a world where we normally take the self to be continuous. Um, and we would hold a very odd belief about various subjects, such as moral responsibility, if we thought that the self was, was discontinuous. Uh, and this, well, this is just to say again what I said about the abstract painting lives in the world of uh, where we are interested in real objects and, and colours as parts of objects and so on. Um, I don't know. I mean, it would, this would be an interesting sort of theory, wouldn't it, to say that, that um, uh, artists are always conservatives uh, because they have a, a tolerant... I think there's a kind of tolerance involved. I don't know about... Um, conservative, exactly, but I think that a great artist has got a kind of tolerance because he can see an awful lot of, of what's really there. I mean, Shakespeare can, can see 
an enormous amount. And I think there's a kind of breath of, of tolerance which comes out of Shakespeare because he can see so much. He can see how awfully different different people are and what, what makes them different and how many different ways there are of thinking about the world. And, and this, I think this is a, this, this is, is a, a kind of virtue. And I think it's this virtue of tolerance, which a lot of uh, um, dictatorial art, as it were, is, is deliberately excluding. Well, I think wherever we finish this discussion, Iris Murdoch, it would have a very sort of unfinished feel, but that's in the nature of the, of the subject, and I think we are going to have to stop now. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs>